know a lot of you have had a chance to get away and some are away now. It just shocked me how quick summer has gone. It's already halfway through July. I can't believe it. If any of you have spent much time around Jill and I, you'll know that we love landscaping. Uh, Every house that we've owned or lived at, we've immediately gone in and planted shrubs and plants and trees and um, we love it. I think the first house we were at at our previous church, the Parsonage, it went from having zero trees to over 30 trees that we planted. <laughs> so we love it. We love, uh, we love landscaping. Maybe that's uh, Jill's family's side's influence on our life, the farmer and the green thumb. But I've come to love just being in the yard and, and working in the yard, doing, doing yard work, especially those trees that we plant, Jill and I, consider, hey, what are we going to plant and where are we going to plant it? And when do we need to plant it? And uh, we, we figure all that out. We strategically place our trees, the certain kinds of trees in certain places, whether it's decorative, ornamental, shade, or whatever you, you have. And uh, one of my favorite things year by year is to watch and see those trees grow. Does anybody else do that or am I the only weirdo? Okay, good. I'm not the only weirdo. The first year, if you've done it much, you know you have to care for those trees, right? They, they need a lot of attention. You gotta get the root ball established. You gotta loosen up the soil around it. Gotta keep them wet. Gotta uh, feed them with the right nutrients. And there's not really any growth that happens that first year. And so when it goes into dormancy, you don't know if it's doing well or not until the spring comes. Spring comes, its little buds come out and it puts on two or three inches of growth. You know it survived. You're good. Okay. But it's not till probably two to three years in that the tree really starts putting on growth. You, you go from measuring new growth by the inch to measuring it by the foot. And I love it. It's exciting because you, you begin to see the, the idea that you had in your mind as far as how your landscape's going to look. You, you see it start developing and taking shape. Those trees and all the potential that was in that tree when you planted it is now starting to fulfill its potential. And it's just an exciting thing. That really captures the stage of discipleship we're going to consider this morning, the child-young adulthood stage. Um, If you haven't been with us, we've been doing a big series on discipleship, and we've narrowed our focus a little bit for the last four weeks, the last three weeks, this is the third, on looking at stages of discipleship. Two weeks ago, we looked at where it begins, and that's it. We're dead. Every one of us is dead spiritually. We're separated from God the Father. But as Ephesians 2, um, verse 3 says, God made us alive with Christ. And so we considered that. We considered that the gospel is God's solution for man's problem, his separation from God. What was lost in Adam's sin in Eden, that relationship that we were created for, was regained by Jesus through the cross and resurrection. And so the gospel and discipleship starts with that great truth. Death is the great leveler of all people. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, powerful or not powerful, great, small, we're all dead. And we all have to contend with that reality. But God makes us alive with Christ. Well, from death, then we move into infancy. We looked at that last week. Every single one of us, again, is at this stage at some point. Now, I want to remind you that 
as I speak of these stages, it's hard not to conceive of it in a physical sense, right? A baby can be an infant for several months, and so can someone spiritually, but someone spiritually can also grow very quickly in Christ and mature very quickly. But in infancy, we saw that they're Christians, but man, they're still stuck in sin. They still have a lot of the idols of their heart. They're still carnal in their practice or their thinking, their language perhaps. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 3 to the Corinthian church. I wanted to speak to you as mature people. I wanted to feed you with solid food, but you couldn't handle it. And you're still not able to handle it. You're still on milk. And, uh, and I, I finished that sermon with this emphasis, and this is important, that we have a tendency to measure spiritual maturity by how much we know, and that's deceptive. The Pharisees knew a whole lot more about the Old Testament than I ever could, probably. They had the, the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. Their knowledge was great, but they were dead. And so you can't measure someone's spiritual maturity by their knowledge of theology or Scripture. It doesn't work that way because true maturity is taking what you know and living it out in the Spirit. Today we're going to consider moving from infancy to the child, young adult. Some pastors and theologians make a distinction at this stage, and, and it very well could be that there's... there's um, a stage of childhood, and then a stage of young adulthood. I'm going to treat them as, as one, um, but I just want you to be aware of that. They, they, they do overlap. But it's amazing to me as, as I studied this, how the Scripture uh, is able to communicate truth to us, both as, as statements of truth, but also as examples to consider. If you think of the, the nation of Israel, I use the example of their infancy can be depicted as, as God led them out of Egypt from the bondage of sin, from their, their death, right, into the wilderness. That was their time of infancy. God had to strip them of their idols. He had to strip them of, of walking by sight, walking according to the cravings of their flesh, and teach them to walk by faith. The time in the wilderness for Israel was a painful time. Moses dies. Joshua takes over, he leads them into the promised land, and you see the growth. They come to the city of Jericho, the first city they encounter, and they conquer it, right? And it was conquered by faith. They showed that that generation who, who refused to trust the Lord, who perished in the wilderness, and their children who came up next, they were zealous. They were trusting the Lord. They were growing into young adults. Many such passages can be, can be seen as a parallel to this truth. But we're going to consider a New Testament example. Just as we looked at Corinth last week, as well as a bunch of other passages, I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians for our purpose this week. Thessalonica was one of Paul's favorite churches. If you've studied his letters, you know he had a fondness for this church. Maybe not quite as much as the church at Philippi, but this was a good, healthy church. In Acts, when we studied Acts, if you remember the history, Paul had come to Thessalonica fleeing from Philippi, fleeing from the persecution that he was enduring there. And he preached the gospel boldly. And he began suffering under the Jews who were at Thessalonica. So he wasn't able to stay 
as long as he'd wished. Nonetheless, the people of Thessalonica received the gospel. They received it in power. They believed it. They were rooted and grounded in it and began walking. But Paul had to flee maybe a month, two months, three months later, not very long after he arrived. And so there was still fear in Paul's heart and mind that were they truly established? Did I have enough time? Are they going to be tempted away from the faith? We're going to do a quick survey of all the things that Paul praised about this church. And I could have missed some. But real quickly, I have the the statements up there and the references to the chapter and verse of all the things that Paul praised at the church at Thessalonica. I want to read the first one, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That could be a sermon in and of itself. Work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Those are the three pillars of the Christian life. They are essential to walk with the Lord. And all three of those are established in the church, Paul said. We remember these things. If any one of those things is not present in a church, that church will will crumble. But he praises more things. In chapter 1, verse 6, he praises them, saying they became imitators of Christ through Paul, right? They They had looked at Paul's example, and they'd imitated it. They received the Lord despite much affliction. Chapter 1, verse 6, and then chapter 2, 14. Look at chapter 2, 14 with me. He says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They displeased God and opposed all mankind. So they received the Lord despite the reality of suffering. Number four, they became examples to the believers. So not only did they imitate, they went on to become examples themselves for others to imitate. It's so important. That's chapter 1, verse 7. You can look at 1 Timothy 4, 11-16. We're going to actually look at that passage several times, so I won't go there now. But not only that, they began sharing their faith. Chapter 1, verse 8. This is something we don't encourage or talk about much, and we need to. It's so important for new Christians to learn to share your faith in Christ. Speak about it. Even if it's the elementary basic things, speak about it. Speak about your faith. They shared their faith. Paul says your faith has gone out through all the region. They all know what happened to you, how you turned to God from idols. That's the sixth point. They broke away from their idols. Now this is what separates many times an infant in Christ from a maturing believer in Christ. There's idols of the heart that still rule in an infant's life sometimes in Christ. And until those are broke... They are not able to grow and progress in the faith. Well, Thessalonians broke off those idols and turned to God. Number seven, they received the word as God's word, not man's. Chapter two, verse 13. Again, that's so essential. They weren't persuaded by people. Their faith didn't rest on their neighbor's faith or their parents' faith. When they heard the word, they believed it as God's. Number eight, they walked in holiness. Again, the true sign of a growing Christian. 
Is your life being transformed into the likeness of God? He is holy. And He saved us for that purpose. This is the will of God, Paul would say later on in chapter 4. Your sanctification, your, your being made holy. That's God's will for each and every one of us. So if, if we're not being transformed into the holiness, reflecting the holiness of God, we're not growing as Christians if we are Christians. And last, they loved one another as taught from God. Chapter 4, verse 9. Remember what Jesus said in the Gospels, by this all people will know you're my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. Again, this is a good test because you can run into people who have a lot of knowledge of theology, but very little love for the brothers. Their theology is a cold, dark, drab thing. Not a loving, vibrant, active, serving thing. The love of God should be manifest. So those are some, some things that Paul, Paul praised at Thessalonica as their growing evidence in the faith. But the passage I really want to look at, look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. He says, You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God, God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. As we progress in the faith, and we come into this stage of adulthood, going from needing milk to eating solid food, there's some realities that Paul points out as a father does to his own children. That's the comparison he makes. Three things. He says, we exhorted each one of you, we encouraged you, and we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. This is where, where infants move from childhood. One of the things that's, that our kids right now are going through in our own home is this growing pain. No longer are they little infants not able to do anything for themselves. They've got to pick up some of the duties of the house. And we have one child in particular who doesn't like it at all. And I'm sure you could probably guess which one it is. It's our Princess Diva, as we call her. Whenever we start saying it's time to pick up, start to clean up, all of a sudden she just kind of fades away. And we find her in a corner somewhere. The growth into young adulthood, childhood is hard sometimes. It requires encouragement, charging. This is who we are to be in Christ. There's a, there's a change in our thinking where we, we, we understand with growth comes responsibility. With growth sometimes comes rebuke. With growth sometimes comes some hard truths. Last night I was talking to Natalie about this very thing of chores and stuff and one of her chores is she feeds the pets. And she said, Dad, can someone else feed the pets? I don't like doing it. And I said, well, you know, I don't really like doing all your laundry all the time. Do you want to do that? Well, I can't. Well, who's going to do it? And then I said, I, you know, I don't really like taking out the trash all the time. Do you want to take the trash? Well, I can't. It's too heavy. Well, then who's going to do it? And I just started listing everything that I don't really like doing all the time. And I said, Nellie, the point is this. Responsibility is responsibility. Sometimes we just got to grow up and do it. It's got to be done. 
Paul is pointing this church toward the realities of what it means to start walking with God. We are to walk in a manner worthy of Him. We are to reflect, as he's already said, His holiness. We are to grow into that image and likeness. And we are to be representatives of His gospel and kingdom. Part of growing up means we need to exhort each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to sometimes charge each other. This is who we are as God's children and point each other toward that way. I made a list outside of this scripture of just some of the positive characteristics of this child to young adult stage. I love thinking about this stage because so often it's the young who are zealous, right? I've, I've told you I've been reading and studying just a lot about history and in particular recently just reading about World War II and what struck me I didn't realize was really how young the soldiers during World War II were. Very often the soldiers from America and Germany and the other sides were 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old kids. I'm reading a book my dad gave me of a a third division tank driver, 19-year-old kid who's driving across Germany leading a tank crew. Kids are able to do things. They're given more and more responsibility, and often they do it well. There's so much positive aspects about this stage of a Christian's life. When they begin to mature, there's zeal, there's strength, there's joy. Here's a list of some. They serve, joy, they serve others with joy, Philippians chapter 2. That's what Paul exhorts them, right? Have that mind among yourselves which was in Christ Jesus. Don't count your needs only, count everyone else's. And at this stage in a Christian's life, when they're walking with the Lord, there's nothing more joyous than to serve others. That's the whole purpose. That's the nature of the Christian life. It's better to give than to receive, our Lord said. And there's a joy present with these young adults who are serving others. They're others-centered. Humility. Same passage, Philippians 2. No longer are they living for the flesh for themselves and what they can get out of things. So many people who come to church only come to church for what they can get out of it. When you enter this stage of the Christian life, yes, you want to get something out of church. I don't want to demonize that. You should be getting something out of church. But so often what we get out of church is the joy of giving at church. There's others-centered humility. There's sacrificing. Turn to 1 John chapter 3 with me. They're sacrificing present with these people. At the infant stage, you very rarely see those young Christians sacrificing for others. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, an infant is able to begin to talk about the love of God. They've received the love of God. They've they've tasted and know it. But the young adults understand that love, the greatest love, is giving. And they begin to participate in the love of God in that way. They sacrifice. And not only do they do it, they do it willingly. They do it joyfully. It's not a begrudging type thing. It's their joy. It's their happiness to give to their friends, their family, their brothers in Christ. They want to do this. 
They're strong and zealous. Job 20.11 just says this, refers to the youthful zeal, saying his bones are full of youthful vigor. I love that poetic statement. His bones are full of youthful zeal. You see that in our kids today. There's a zeal present in them that we don't have sometimes as older people, let alone as older Christians. This is one of the reasons I love new, young, growing Christians in the church. Because so often they kind of blow off the crust of us older ones, right? And they challenge us. You see this often worked out in the style of worship. <laughs> it's often heated debate, unfortunately, in church. But young Christians, they want to praise God and they want to encode songs that speak their heart, not just the previous generations. They're strong and zealous. First John chapter 2, since you're there, verse 12 and 14, 14, John writes this, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. Then in verse 14, I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So often at this stage, it's so joyous to see young Christians who've maybe lived a life of sin. And again, when I say young Christians, this could be a 60-year-old person. Okay, They've lived a life of sin. But now they're growing in Christ and there's beginning to be victories over that sin, deliverance over that sin, freedom from those sins. And there's such joy present. That's what John's saying. You've overcome the evil one. No longer when the evil one comes tempting are you just take, take, take the bait. You're able to resist, as James talks about. And you're able to have victory over those things that once ensnared you. They learn at this stage as well to do spiritual battle. Same passage, 1 John chapter 2. You're strong, the Word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the evil one. But I want to look at probably the greatest example of what spiritual battle looks like. Go to Matthew 26. This is Jesus in the garden. And it's a wonderful contrast of how we carnally think of battle versus what spiritual battle looks like. Both are represented in this passage. Jesus is praying in the garden. Verse 36 of chapter 26, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with Me. And going a little farther, He fell on His face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. And He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So could you not watch with Me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. But then if you notice, the crowd comes to the garden to arrest Jesus. 
Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you've come to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were there with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to him, put your sword into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. You not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must go be so? Did you see the contrast? Jesus praying, anguishing in the garden, sweating great drops of blood was probably the greatest spiritual battle that's ever been fought for you and I. It's a wonderful study. It's a wonderful passage to consider. The battle that was being done, Jesus over yours and my soul, if Jesus failed in that battle, redemption was lost for everyone. He gets up, the battle's won, and what's Peter do? Pulls out his sword and starts swinging. That's the contrast. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God. Spiritual young adults begin to realize there's a battle raging with them between their flesh and the Spirit, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, and every one of us is called to be a soldier, yet we do not fight like worldly soldiers. They realize, I am called to do spiritual battle. I remember as a young, brand new Christian, I can even remember exactly where I was at driving in Albuquerque with my brother in my old Toyota Celica. Iron Man, as my parents affectionately knew him. I was a brand new Christian. I mean, I couldn't have been more than a few months old. And my brother and I were listening to a tape. Yes, we had tapes, tape deck back then. From John MacArthur, a sermon on 2 Timothy chapter 2, where, where Paul talks about, hey, we're all soldiers, right? We're all to be in this spiritual battle. And he, he made a point. It burned in my mind. He said, you know, so many in the church with this spiritual battle raging on around us, so many in the church are like little children playing games on the front line. And man, I saw that immediately. See, church, when we are not doing spiritual battle, we're truly actually showing our infancy in the Lord. We don't realize just because I'm not engaging in prayer, that I'm not engaging in the sharing of the gospel and wrestling over people's souls and doing battle in my own heart over my own sin. If that's not happening in us, we are like little children, oblivious to what's going on around us. Young adults who are walking with the Lord begin to realize, I must put on the armor of God. Because Satan is firing his darts at me constantly. And I need help. They do spiritual battle. Made a list of other biblical examples, not just things that a young adult in Christ begins to engage in, but examples of youth that God used. Remember in Exodus... 
Joshua was under Moses for a long time, but in chapter 33, verse 11, says that Joshua was just a young man serving Moses. He was Moses' attendant. But before chapter 33 in Exodus 17, the first battle in the wilderness that they, they engaged in, guess who was leading the army? As Moses stood there with his arms raised, it was Joshua, the young man, leading the battle. David against Goliath. You know that story well. We don't need to turn to it. Chapter 16 says that David was just a ruddy little youth. And when he shows up, all the army of Israel's cowering against the giant. David says, I'll go. You can't go. You're just a child. Even Goliath in chapter 17, 41 through 47 mocks David saying, you send me a youth to fight. We know the outcome. Timothy with Paul, one of my favorite biblical examples. In chapter 16, Paul comes to Lystra, finds young Timothy, a, a young disciple who had a good reputation. In other words, he was growing in Christ. So what did Paul do? He took Timothy along with him. And of course, Timothy became the pastor at Ephesus, Paul's most trusted companion. He became his beloved son in the faith. In fact, Paul would say of, of Timothy, I have no one else who's as like-minded as him. Maybe some of the other ones you didn't realize or forgot. Jeremiah the prophet, chapter 1. It's the calling of Jeremiah. In fact, Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah opens up. God saying, I called you before you even formed Jeremiah. If you know anything about Jeremiah's ministry, it was probably the most difficult ministry of any prophet in the Old Testament. He preached for 50 years to, to Judah without success. Very few converts. But he started preaching when he was a young man. He was hesitant to be a prophet because he was a young man, but God says, I've put my word in your mouth. Go say it. Samuel is another great example. Dedicated to the Lord by his mother Hannah from birth. He grew up under Eli, the priest. And at a very young age, he's sleeping in his room and he hears the Lord begin to call him and he thinks it's Eli. You remember that account? He goes into Eli's room several times and Eli finally realizes what's going on. He says, next time that happens, say, here I am, Lord, speak. Your servant listens. And from that time on, all Israel remembered and knew God's establishing Samuel as a prophet. He was a young man. There are so many examples biblically. There are so many examples in the history of the church of young adults in Christ being great leaders, doing great things for the Lord. That's why I love this stage of discipleship. At this stage, they're fearless, they're eager, they're zealous, they are active. They want to do things. They want to serve their Lord. And the church needs to come alongside of them and help them. Because the reality is, as zealous as they might be, there's still presence of naivety. Both in life experience and in doctrine. We see that back in Thessalonica. As many things as Paul praised the church for, there were still some fears he had for them. One was that the suffering they were enduring would cause them to abandon their faith. I know for me, that's always a concern. Now, I, I get it that in America, we don't truly suffer for our faith. We might endure loss of friends or family or whatnot, and that might hurt. But the reality is even that can tempt someone away from following the Lord. 
What about in other countries where the cost is truly great? Possibly their life. So Paul had a fear that the suffering the Thessalonians were enduring would cause them to abandon the faith. That's why he wrote back so quickly saying, when I couldn't endure it any longer, I sent Timothy back to you to check on you. He had this fear. He also, if you turn to 2 Thessalonians with me, had a fear that their faith was being upset by some false teaching. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he says, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Children and young adults at this stage of their growth in Christ are still very prone to stumbling in sin. They're still prone to being deceived by the trickery of men, by false teachings. It's true that all people at whatever stage of growth this can happen to. But certainly I wouldn't just send my 16-year-old child into a theological hotbed debate if you know what I mean. They just don't have the wherewithal, maybe the knowledge base or the experience to understand what's going on. Some other negative characteristics about this stage of discipleship from a young child to a young adult, they can be self-centered. If you go read James chapter 4, let me just read it to you actually, verse 1-4. through four. James says this, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. So you murder, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. They can be self-centered still. They can be idealistic or naive. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 Great verse to remember. Paul warns us we are to no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. It's naive to think that every teaching is just okay. It's, it's not maybe what we believe, but it's okay. No, it's not. Not every teaching is. There's discernment required. How often have you seen in the church the, the latest fad come blowing through like a fire through the church theologically, and all the churches jump on board and chase after it, only to find out it's empty, it's chafe. But so often churches are tossed to and fro by every new doctrine that comes through. They don't test things as the Bereans did and were praised for. Later on in Ephesians 5, Here's the naivety he warns us against. Verse 5 through 7, he says, You may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, they're an idolater, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's a strong statement, one that's hard for the modern church to, to really embrace. But Paul says, You can be sure of this. If this is who they are, they're not Christians. Don't be naive. And then he gives this warning. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In other words, 
Here's the, the corrective to a young adult's naivety. There's people who say, yes, yes, I'm of the Lord, I'm of the Lord, I follow Christ, I know Him, I've been born again, whatever it might be. Paul says those are empty words if they're still living this way. It's an empty profession. You can be sure of that. Don't be deceived. And he goes on to warn him, don't partake in what they're doing because you will be sucked into it yourself. There's a danger there. So often young Christians, man, they're so eager to love that they, have, they embrace everything without discernment. They just accept everything without testing it. They can also be overconfident in themselves. Paul warns against this to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 10-12, he says, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And then in Romans 11, he says this, 19 and 20, you will, Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. He's speaking of Israel versus the Gentiles. He says, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But then he gives this warning. You stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but fear. And then in 12, um, 12, 3, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. You see, a mature Christian understands, I'm nothing. I've got a lot of weaknesses. It's mature thinking. Someone considers themselves, man, I'm all that. I know a lot. I do a lot. I'm pretty awesome. Get ready. He's about to fall. They can be overconfident in themselves, but they can also be underconfident in the Lord. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. I love this example. Be familiar to you, but in Matthew chapter 8, 23 through 27, these young disciples at this time, the young apostles, underconfidence in who Jesus is is exposed. It says, When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was asleep. So they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? You see, they're exposed as the underconfidence in who Jesus was. Very often at this stage, the young adult's faith is still pretty shallow, still pretty weak. It's fragile. Be careful with it. Don't put them in situations where they will fail. Let's begin wrapping this up with some applications, some takeaways for the church. What do young adults in the faith need at this stage of their growth? Well, first and foremost, a relational connection with those who are in the church family. I've quoted very often Acts 2, 41-47. You can go look at it. But what is a relational connection? What do I mean by that? Well, it includes a corporate connection. This right here. Hebrews chapter... Uh, I can't remember the passage. In Hebrews, it says, Don't forsake the gathering together, as is the habit of some. Right, But as the day draws near, meet more and more. So those who have the habit of not coming to the corporate worship of church, they're injuring themselves in their faith. But it also includes in small groups. 
Look at Jesus. What did he do when he came? He got a group of 12 men with him. And then from that 12, even, he got a group of three that he really poured into. And not only that, you need individual connections. Paul with Timothy is a good example. Joshua with Moses. Barnabas to Paul. You need corporate, you need small group, you need individual connections. I want to talk about this relational connection. It's vital. The heart of God's creation of man in Genesis was that He created man in His image. And that image is a relational plurality. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. At our very core, we are relational people. We crave relationship. We were created to know God. And as I said earlier, that's what was lost in Eden, but yet regained by Christ through the cross and resurrection. But it's this relationship to God that's now manifested through the church to the world. I'll say that again. I want you to understand it. God's purpose of redemption is to restore man back to himself in relationship, in right relationship, in true righteousness and holiness, as Paul would say in Ephesians. And he manifests that through the church to the world by the gospel. The church is to be, as we're called, the body of Christ. We are to encapsulate who the Lord is we are to make manifest, as Paul would say, the Lord. In other words, it is impossible for people to be image bearers of God while living in isolation from the body. You cannot manifest God in your life apart from the relational aspects of church. It's impossible. Author Keith Johnson, in his book, Theology is Discipleship, said it this way. I love this quote. He says, if our being in the image of God is determined by our relationships with God and with others, and he says this, the way we exist is just as important as the fact that we exist. We are defined primarily not by the capacities we possess, but by the way we use our capacities within the context of our relationships. The way you exist in relationship to each other in the church is just as important as the fact that you exist as a Christian. That reflects moving from infancy to maturity in that process. When you get that truth that, hey, it's great that I've been born again. That's awesome. But there's more to it. I've been born again to be part of His body. To serve. That's my identity. It's what this stage desperately needs, this relational connection with those in the church family. They also need growth in establishing spiritual disciplines. 1 Timothy 4 is such a great passage. Paul says this, Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these. Now some of us still struggle with discerning what our spiritual gift is. That's okay. But my encouragement at this point, this time, is 
Discover your spiritual gift and then don't neglect it. Why? Because God gives each one of His members in His body a gift to be used, according to 1 Corinthians 12, for the building up of the body of Christ. They need growth in establishing spiritual disciplines, prayer, Bible study, fellowship, serving, tithing, all the things we looked at last week. Establishing their identities in Christ, all those in Christ, with Christ statements that we looked at. I've been crucified with Christ. I've been buried with Christ. I've been made alive in Christ. I've been raised with Christ and I've been seated with Christ. That's our identity. But on the flip side of that, Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, I have been crucified to the world and the world crucified to me. Not only have I been made alive in Christ, but I'm now dead to that which I was once alive to. My identity is no longer in the world. If anybody as a Christian can go into the world and be very comfortable in it, there's something wrong. I've been crucified to the world and the world to me. They need to cultivate true knowledge and to heart worship and obedience. That's my point earlier. We have to grow in the knowledge of Christ. We're transformed in our minds by the Word of God. That must take place. But it's not simply the acquiring of knowledge. Knowledge needs to be transformed into obedience and worship. That's growth. If all somebody's doing is gaining knowledge, they're going to crash and crash hard. They're going to become puffed up and arrogant and good for nothing. So they need to learn to walk in what they know. They need to serve others. They need to discover, as I said earlier, their spiritual giftedness. They need to suffer for their faith. This is so important. (laughs) Something we don't like to talk about, but I would say this, if all men speak well of you, woe to you, as Jesus said. For so they did to the false prophets. If you can engage the lost and never have any problem, there's something wrong with your witness. Because when Christ came to the lost, He drew many, but He repelled many as well. The self-righteous and arrogant couldn't stand Him. They wanted to kill Him constantly. There's something that happens when we are crucified to the world. We no longer have fellowship with it. There's a break. There's a coming out of. Last, as I said earlier, they learn to do spiritual battle. All those passages I quoted earlier. But to that last point, one of the things that we, uh, one of the books we like and have read to our children is C.S. Lewis, The Narnia Chronicles. It's a series of books, actually. But The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a great quote from it. Doing spiritual battle. If you remember this, the beaver is taking the princes and prince Long says, Mr. Beaver said, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Why do I say that? In doing spiritual battle... Very often, when I pray with people or pray in groups or pray with my children, for instance, 
One of the most common prayers is this, Lord, keep us safe. I've prayed it. But really, that's not a very mature prayer. It might be for my kids, but not for someone growing in Christ. A maturing believer isn't really concerned about safety. What they're concerned about is faithfulness. See, this is what hinders the church from becoming truly who we probably should be. If we're more concerned about safety, we'll never go into places where our safety is threatened. If that's what is primary, if that's what our idol is, my safety, I don't want to be threatened. So we'll never risk anything. We'll never do anything daring. We'll never go anywhere where that can be taken. People who are walking with the Lord in very unsafe places have such a deep fellowship. And what you constantly hear in testimony after testimony in their missionary biographies and testimonies is this. They're more concerned about faithfulness to Christ. I can take my body, as Jesus said, but I fear the one who can destroy my soul. I fear Him. I want to challenge us there's an old pastor named Christmas Evans, born in the late 1700s. And you can guess why he was named Christmas. He was born on December 25th. He came to faith when he was about 18 years old and became a very well-known Welsh preacher. And if you know anything about Welsh history, they have a lot of famous Welsh preachers. Charles Spurgeon was probably the last greatest. Maybe Martin Lloyd-Jones. But... Nonetheless, Christmas Evans, before he came to faith, was, uh, was no one you thought would have ever been a great preacher. He received no education growing up. His father died when he was very young, so his mother sent him to live with her brother, who was an atheist and an alcoholic. And so he grew up in that home, became an alcoholic himself, spent his time fighting in the bars. He was once nearly drowned by a man who was fighting. He was stabbed by a man who was fighting, and he lost his left eye in a bar fight which affected him the rest of his life. Rough man. But he came to faith and he became an incredible preacher of God. He'd been serving the Lord for about 15 years, pastoring a number of churches in the Welsh mountains. And as he was going to minister to them, I want to read what he wrote in his diary. These are his words. I was weary of a cold heart toward Christ and His sacrifice and the work of His Spirit. I was weary of a cold heart in the pulpit. I was weary of my cold heart in private prayer and in private Bible study. For 15 years previously, I had felt my heart burning within me as if going to Emmaus with Jesus. On a day ever to be remembered by me, I was going from town to town and climbing upward to another in the mountains. But I considered it incumbent on me to pray, however hard I felt my heart to be and however worldly the frame of my spirit was. Having began in the name of Jesus, I soon felt as it were the fetters loosening and the old hardness softening, and as I thought the mountains of frost and snow dissolving and melting within me. This engendered confidence in my soul and the promise of the Holy Spirit. I felt my whole mind relieved from some great bondage. Tears flowed and I was constrained to cry out for the gracious visits of God by restoring my soul the joy of His salvation and that He would visit the churches in the towns under my care. 
I embraced in my supplication all the churches of the saints and nearly all the ministers by their names. This struggle lasted for three hours. It rose again and again like one wave after another or a high-flowing tide driven by a strong wind until my nature became faint by weeping and crying. So I resigned myself to Christ, body and soul, gifts and labors all my life, every day, every hour that remained for me, and all my cares I committed to Christ. I would say most of us have probably never even had an experience like that. But that's true Christianity. So I want you to take some time as the worship team comes up here. And I want you to go before the Lord. And I want you to pray for His visitations to you. That's what Christianity is about. That's where growth happens. And we're going to sing a song imploring the Lord that very truth. So take some time and go before the Lord, please. As you sit there silently, with your eyes closed, I just want you to listen to something. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. His motto was, go for souls and go for the worst. And in every Salvation Church, Salvation Army Church, they would have something called the Mercy Seat off to the side somewhere. But it was just the opportunity that they understood, I've got to go do business with God. They weren't afraid to do it. Believer, non-believer, they would go there and they'd weep, they'd wrestle with God. They'd get bloodied up sometimes, maybe their hip put out a socket like Jacob, but the Lord would bless them. If we were to be a church growing in maturity, we don't just need to know things, we need to experience what we know. Those truths that are real in Scripture must be made real in life. Otherwise, it's just knowledge to us. These are what we call growing pains spiritually. And maybe some of us need to begin having some growing pains. It might hurt. It might be embarrassing. It might be painful. But the blessing will come. That's my prayer. That's what I was praying for you this morning. So I was overwhelmed with it, the presence of Christ about how we can sit on the sidelines and not join in the course of creation. Jesus has done it all. Not only that, He's covenanted Himself to us. He's bound Himself to us in a union. In Him we have all we need. In Him, His grace is sufficient for us. I don't want to be one who's too proud to admit when I need it. Admit when I fail. To admit, like Christmas Evans did in his own journal, that my heart has become cold. I may be doing spiritual disciplines, but doing it with a cold heart. We're going to sing the song, Lord, I Need You.